having a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. And back to another episode in our podcast series about China. Nathan Romas with you, as well as our co-host for this series, Calvin Krusty, senior partner and consultant with the Critical Risk team. So welcome, Calvin. Thanks uh, very much, Nathan. And I'm uh, extremely interested in the conversation with uh, Scott today. Uh, Our discussions continue with several experts regarding issues such as foreign influence, organized crime, money laundering, and hybrid warfare, just to name a few. Due to the growing influence on our nation from both outside actors and within, Calvin and I have put together this series to explore and better understand these issues. And before I introduce our guest, I would just like to clarify when we're talking about China, that we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party or CCP and their various means of influence and coercion. This is distinct from the good people of China, the majority of whom have contributed to the advancement and interests of Canada and other nations. So for our discussion today, we have Scott Newark on the program. He is a former Crown, uh, Alberta Crown Prosecutor, Executive Officer on the Canadian Police Association, and Director of Operations for the Washington, D.C.-based Investigative Project on Terrorism. He served as a security policy advisor to both the Ontario and Canadian Ministers of Public Safety. And Scott is a policy analyst and frequent public commentator on matters of border security, counterterrorism, security technology applications, critical infrastructure protection, and cybersecurity. Uh, and probably the most important and his biggest claim to fame, he's previously guest on this podcast, season one, episode 27. More important than all those other things you did. <laughs> so welcome, Scott. Thanks very much. Um, so just before we kind of got this rolling, um, we were just saying we're going to have a focus on Project Sidewinder, which is very Canadian content. Um, but a report, this was a report from the 90s, um, jointly done by the RCMP and CSIS that I guess wasn't really given its due at the time. Um, People weren't really paying attention to it, but it was almost prophetic in some ways. And now um, it kind of forms a basis of a lot of the things that we are concerned with or looking into on a geopolitical scale. So um, can you kind of tell us, Scott, uh, tell us about your involvement with Project Sidewinder and the people that were a part of it and then um, talk about the project. Okay. Um, Well, I was uh, serving as the executive officer of the Canadian Police Association. And when I got a phone call, this would have been in probably uh, 1996. I got a phone call from a guy who was a friend of mine uh, named David Kilgore, who was also a former Alberta Crown prosecutor. But at that point, he was serving as a uh, liberal cabinet minister in Ottawa. And he called me up and he said, Hey, uh, And his portfolio was, uh, he was the associate minister for uh, foreign affairs responsible for the Asia Pacific. And he called me up and he said, hey, uh, listen, I've been notified about this report that was uh, written 
by uh, an intelligence officer for the Canadian uh, embassy that was in Hong Kong in those days, and as well, uh, a guy who was the RCMP, they called them international liaison officers, and they'd written some papers about some pretty shady things that were going on. The beginning of it was centered on the abuse of the uh, investor and entrepreneur immigration program, uh, but as well, it also included um, uh, some pretty alarming evidence of potential corruption of Canadian officials in Hong Kong. Uh, and the people who were benefiting from this were uh, triads, were organized uh, crime groups that were primarily stationed or operated out of uh, Hong Kong. And these guys had written uh, reports about it. They detailed it. I got to know them both. Um, sadly, the guy uh, who was the uh, uh, Foreign uh, Intelligence Officer, Brian McAdam, sadly, he, he passed away, actually, just uh, last month. And uh, the RCMP officer's name is uh, Gary Clement. Mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, back. He's actually left the RCMP. He's uh, now focused on financial crimes, which was a big part of what these guys were writing about and ultimately what Project Sidewinder got into. But my friend David Kilgore said, you know, you're pretty good at uh, digging uh, through uh, these complicated things and, you know, getting things uh, organized. And so how'd you like to come in and meet these guys? Uh, you know, sure, fine. And I should, I'll just digress for a second and explain mm -hmm. um, my background in the sense of moving into the policy world, if you will. Um, I got into that because, and again, it was because really of my connections with the intelligence guys in the RCMP, uh, where I was exposing, I was digging down and getting at the truth, and I was exposing what were essentially institutional cover-ups of high-risk repeat offenders released improperly, in one instance illegally, from federal prisons, and they went on and killed people. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of my background, I knew some political people as well, and I exposed all of this stuff. And the irony of all of this was is that it turned out that that was frankly, the identical situation that we were facing with this, which was that these two people, frontline operational people, had discovered uh, some real serious misconduct and put together the necessary material to fix it. But unfortunately, the people in charge didn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. We ultimately referred to that actually in, uh, in my time with the police association. It was part of, in effect, the culture of the bureaucracy in Ottawa, which was no news is good news. And what happened was these guys put together a series of reports about what was taking place. And there were these people who were abusing, being able to uh, uh, use the uh, immigration programs, the entrepreneur program or the investor program. And they should never have been admitted into Canada. They had deep, deep triad connections. They were using it to continue. Um, mm -hmm. And they were, um, you know, using it to expand their criminal empires and as well to do things like money laundering. And it turned out as they got into it more and more that these uh, triad groups were connected to the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. So it expanded the scope of what was really at stake here. 
And that's what we, you know, they were very, very frustrated because they were pointing all this stuff out and nobody wanted to hear about it. And it was something they were told not to report on. And why do you think that was at the time? So uh, a lot of like what I've been reading, it sounds like a lot of, uh, again, like willful blindness. A lot of people are just saying, I'm not interested or, you know, I'm not, you know, that's not taking priority. But why at the time, so this is in the late 90s, with whoever is in power and and the reporting structures that were there, how come these things were not looked at at, at that moment? Well, I'll give you uh, two uh, things that became apparent to me. One was uh, the um, uh, a culture that was, quite frankly, corrupt. They were referred to as red envelopes, mm. and the staff that were employed at the Hong Kong consulate were very often invited to casinos, to race uh, tracks, and they would be given red envelopes full of money from these triad members. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and of course, nobody wanted to admit that there was anything wrong about any of that, but it also put them in a position where somebody said, you know, we want you to look the other way, that they had leverage over them. And that was a reality that was there. And the other part of it was, as it got higher up the food chain, in my experience, the other part of it was, is that, um, the overriding culture in the bureaucracy was, especially in management, was uh, we don't want to in any way admit that what we're doing isn't perfect. Yeah. And this might be bad. And look, that reality is exactly what I faced when I was exposing the truth and trying to make changes based on the truth in the Canadian federal correction system and parole system. Okay. So there were some real similarities there. What was really shocking. As we went down, you know, trying to get things exposed is exactly how far the resistance and how deep the resistance was to this uh, exposing the truth. And that's what I became involved in, because as I got into this and I started going through all this stuff and look, it really was complicated in all fairness. And it took a while, you know, to sort of figure out that you have to ask the right questions and everything else. But what these two guys were absolutely excellent at doing was connecting the dots, if you will, showing the connections between these triad groups, the uh, uh, intelligence uh, people in uh, uh, the Chinese government, and as well, what they were doing in Canada, how they had basically crept into our institutions. And that's what a lot of the side report. But what happened was when these guys had written the report, it served as a catalyst really for a lot of other police agencies and intelligence agencies to get involved and to speak with each other, including in those days, the Royal Hong Kong police. Okay. And it, it actually, cause everybody had a little bit of information on some of this stuff, but the work that these two men did was, as I say, a catalyst into bringing people together and ultimately developing a network of people around the world. And I can tell you that it's still in existence. Um, of, you know, uh, people who had an interest in this, who had information about it. And so it led to more and more. But the frustration that they felt because nobody wanted to hear anything about it, nobody wanted to talk to them about it, um, you can imagine how terrible it was. 
And the one guy, Brian McAdam, who was with Foreign Affairs, he was ultimately told that, uh, oh, well, okay, yeah, yeah, we're going to bring you back to Ottawa. We're going to create a special unit, you know, that you can head up to, to deal with all this stuff. And he thought, you know, that, and I got to know, Brian and I got to know each other quite well. He genuinely believed that this was, you know, a potential positive development. So we agreed and they came back to Ottawa. And guess what? Turns out there was no such job that was available. And they put him in a room with a fax machine. Okay. And said, that's it. You're here. You're stuck. Nothing. And it was terrible. And I mean, he, as you can imagine, he suffered some real uh, mental uh, distress as a result of all of that. And so ultimately within, you know, uh, a little over a year, I think it was, he ultimately retired. Yeah. But he didn't give up. But he didn't give up. And Gary, who was the RCMP officer, came back. He ended up in the uh, organized crime section of the RCMP, uh, the anti-terrorism uh, squad. Who had, we had some dealings as a, with each other as a result of that. After uh, 9-11, I was named as a special security advisor to the government of Ontario on uh, terrorism because of some of my background. And we worked on that. He got into what he became the head of the RCMP's financial crime uh, unit. And he ultimately uh, retired uh, maybe about a decade ago. Uh, he became the chief of police in a little town called Coburg in Ontario. And uh, he's now doing work in, he's one of the leading people in Canada on financial crime investigations. And as a result of that, of course, that was the area that he had focused on. But uh, the one thing about both these guys that I really admired and respected is they never gave up. And as a result of that, as you put it, it was in uh, uh, May of 1996, the RCMP and CSIS jointly decided that they were going to do a review of the work that these guys had done and, you know, gathering information from other agencies because the Americans were involved in this kind of looking into this stuff as well, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where Project Sidewinder came from. And what's really unique about uh, Project Sidewinder uh, which was a uh, secret report, uh, was that it had incredible detail. When, for example, it was talking about individuals and the names of the triads, it, it quoted them specifically. When it was talking about how the Chinese had uh, taken over, essentially, uh, the estimate was about 200 companies in Canada. Mm -hmm. They named many of them as well, specifically. And also, one of the things they warned about is that the Chinese communists uh, uh, had uh, figured out that it was there were two other aspects that were really important. One was they wanted to be able to influence, stroke, control what was known as the Chinese diaspora. In other words, the Chinese population that were here, and they set up institutions to be able to do that. Um, still operational, by the way, the United Front Agency mm -hmm. and the Confucius Institutes that operate in uh, different uh, universities and schools in Canada, although more and more of them are being shut down as realization uh, increases. But they also named the companies and they also pointed out that they were attempting to influence Canadian uh, policies and politics by dealing directly with people who had that kind of influence. Okay, sound familiar to, for today? Yeah. Right? No kidding. 25 years later, and, you know, guess what? It's getting a lot more attention than what it deserved. But in any event, 
the Sidewinder report, and I, I, I've tried to recall this. I don't believe I was ever actually interviewed for the Sidewinder report, which makes sense. I didn't have any, you know, original knowledge. I was really just somebody giving kind of tactical advice about some of this stuff. And, um, but the guy who wrote it, uh, the, was a CSIS agent. He was in charge of Asia Pacific affairs. Uh, we have since become friends. I've done, we've worked together on a bunch of different projects. Michelle Juno Katsuya. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, so they had, and it was literally on the day it was in June of 1997, where they were meeting to RCMP and CSIS were meeting to go over the report and to decide on next steps because the report had said, Hey, like, this is really complex and we've gathered all this information and this is a very, very serious security threat to Canada and it needs to be, you know, more fully investigated. So we need to do more work. And guess what? The day they were holding the meeting to discuss that, the word came from the prime minister's office, shut it down, Mm -hmm. destroy all documents. Well, and we'll get into that there. I'll let Calvin uh, jump in here. Yeah, I was just going to ask, Scott, um, at the time, you know, I I didn't start paying attention to uh, some of these uh, acute issues um, until probably the late 2000s. So my recollection of uh, what was taking place uh, at at this uh, time and space that you're uh, making reference to um, when Sidewinder came out. I, I recently read that there was, I believe it was a House of Commons committee or a, a, a related uh, structure with, with a, a process uh, part of it that reviewed Project Sidewinder. And I, uh, I read the summary of it the other day, and it was uh, dismissive of the uh, threats. And knowing that you've had uh, conversations, and I've had very brief conversations, but some, I just wondered if you could summarize some of those lifetime conversations to the best of your recollection in terms of when the report was dismissed by government as to what maybe the reasons why it was dismissed and some of the sediments that were taking place within the policing and intelligence community at that time. Yeah. In fact, I was going through some uh, old files that I had and I found a series of uh, documents, including correspondence on exactly what you're talking about. Uh, It was. in 1999, um, and as I said, these guys, Brian and uh, Gary, never gave up, even though they were obviously humiliated by this. Uh, they actually, Brian, you gotta love him. Brian made a complaint to the then oversight body of CSIS, CERC, Security Intelligence Review Committee. And, you know, normally complaints about CSIS are about them overstepping their authority and doing something they shouldn't. This complaint was different because it was they didn't do their job. And, you know, the oversight body should review that and say, hey, you made a mistake and you didn't examine this. And so I actually participated in some of those hearings. I helped Brian and I attended some of the uh, uh, the meetings. And uh, again, a very bureaucratic process. Um, although they made the right decision in the beginning by agreeing to approve to have the investigation. And then I think what happened is they, shall we say, it went up, you know, the chain. And then there was a realization, oh, geez, you know, we got ourselves into trouble here, agreeing that we're going to do this. And 
I, I can get into more details about it, but we also discovered um, that the body itself, Cirque, had absolutely blatant conflicts of interest in that people who were senior managers at Cirque were linked to organizations that were identified in the Sidewinder report as being compromised and linked to the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. And yet they didn't in any way say, well, well, we're not, you know, we're going to recuse ourselves. They didn't do that. So we had meeting after meeting and they asked us, okay, well, you know, can you give us some suggestions about things? And hard as it is to believe, they then changed their position. And I've got all of this documented as well. They changed their position and said, well, uh, yes, we said that we were going to investigate this, uh, but it's going to be up to you to actually call all the witnesses and like pay for everything. Ridiculous. And what was your position right at that time, uh, Scott? Um, was it within the policing community or was it with the no. what was- but By that point, I had left and I was working with the government of Ontario. I, w- I had a two order in Canada. Actually, at that point, it was before 9-11. So uh, myself and another person who was an old friend of mine, Sharon Rosenfeld, were given order and council appointments. We set up the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Uh, and it was essentially, as you may recall, Back in the days when the uh, Mike Harris government was elected, part of their uh, common sense revolution was about facing public and fighting crime and wanted to have some operational insights. And so they set up this special office for victims of crime. But I did this with Brian just to help Brian because I, you know, I thought it was something of a pretty important public interest. And I was, I would just, I think we probably attended. I don't know, like maybe two or three actual meetings. And it was flopping back and forth and nobody dealing with one of the companies that was named in the Sidewinder report as being, um, you know, linked with the Chinese. And it gave very specific details was Power Corporation. Okay. Which is a big, no kidding, no kidding, pretty uh, big, important company. And, uh, the uh, head of uh, Power Corporation, uh, uh, his um, uh, son was married to Jean Chrétien's daughter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, and the uh, board members of Cirque was actually the brother of uh, somebody who was the executive director of Power Corporation. Okay. Nobody, I mean, no, nobody stepped aside. Nobody pointed anything out. Like it was, it was really uh, uh, quite alarming uh, that that had taken place. And so they basically, you know, we wrote everything out. I gave them the list of all the witnesses and you got to appreciate that uh, because of the work that these did, they built up a network of contacts, both in States, but also in Australia. Uh, and other countries around the world, all of whom had information about this. So we were able to supply them, you know, here are the people that you should be calling if they're really going to investigate this. Never happened. And Scott, I I, uh, I had a facial expression uh, on, a, on, on the call that obviously the listeners can't listen to when you uh, mentioned uh, Power Corp and uh, Montreal, but it's 
I think it's a really good point because, uh, and I don't want to get um, too political, you know, uh, on the national security issues, but particularly, I think, for Western uh, Canadian audiences, which I presume uh, is uh, the majority of uh, Nathan's uh, podcast, mm-hmm. I don't know if if they truly understand, you know, some of the uh, larger contextual issues geopolitically as it relates to how it may impact them. Uh, and the history of it in terms of the interconnectivity uh, between, uh, say, the city of Montreal, uh, historical and contemporary political uh, entities, and how that impacts um, all of us, you know, out West that probably aren't really privy and have that historical insight regarding some of those relationships between the uh, CCP uh, and the Canadian government and the uh, cascading impacts, which you see a lot of frustration coming from Western Canadians, but I don't know if they understand some of the uh, precipitating factors and causal factors that date back uh, three decades ago as a result of some significant business deals. And I think they kind of think, oh, no, it's just somebody's self-interest. But there's a lot more to it than self-interest. There is, yes. Yeah, Calvin. And, you know, even in uh, British Columbia, for example, um, I was involved in this when I was at the police association when the uh, Liberal government decided to get rid of the courts police and to privatize the courts in Canada. And, gee, they uh, granted a... Um, um, right to uh, uh, be present in the port to the uh, China Ocean Shipping Company, who was uh, also the uh, people uh, who were, because of, and the way the structure works in the, in the Chinese government, they're a state-owned enterprise, okay, which is what it actually says. It's the government that controls it. Uh, but they also deliberately structure things in ways so that it makes it very difficult to tell who owns what and who you're actually dealing with. And, and the companies, company that was allowed to have a, was the same uh, company whose subsidiaries had been caught uh, smuggling in 2000 AK-47s into the port of Long Beach, California, where they had been trying to get a, a presence and the Americans kicked them out. And so guess what? You know, oh, yeah, we're going to uh, change the management structure of in Canada. Then they got granted uh, presence at the port of uh, Vancouver. And the uh, increase in drugs skyrocketed in Canada. There was actually one time where there was a demonstration in British Columbia from people, you know, drug addicts saying, please, you know, uh, protect us. We don't want to be drug addicts and die, but the drugs are flowing into the country. And it's one of those exact situations, though, that if you get the right answers, you got to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other thing that I discovered about this, and it was very similar to what I learned as a prosecutor. um, And again, I think I, uh, Nathan, I got discussed this a little bit. I accidentally ended up as a biker prosecutor Mm -hmm. very shortly after I started back in uh, 1981. And what I and that's what started my connections with the intelligence branches of uh, policing in Alberta, especially the RCMP. But uh, one of the things that I learned along the way 
uh, and headed the union, a great guy named uh, Ray Monroe. Um, he told me one time, you got to be able to think like the bad guys. Exactly it. And nobody understands that better than the Chinese government. And nobody understands better than them that, for example, if they you know, say, well, yes, we're going to enter into this agreement, intention of following the terms of the agreement, that the people who will be reluctant to point out that the Chinese are not following what they agreed to will be the Canadian officials yeah. entered into the agreement. Because it might make them look bad. And that's that's what's unfolded and on a continuing basis as we see things over the years. More and more examples, including of individuals uh, who, gee, all of a sudden they get appointed to the Senate after their last position in the um, as, as the president of the uh, Canada-China uh, Business Council, which is, a, you know, it's an agent of the Chinese government. Oh, and guess that person? Uh, the former president, remember I told you about the fact that this guy, Brian McAdam, was promised a special job when he came back to Ottawa? The uh, senior guy from Foreign Affairs who promised him, that's who was who I'm talking about, who's uh, now in the uh, in the Canadian Senate. And I could give you more and more examples. I, I, I just thought uh, I, I would just share one uh, here, knowing that... Uh, um... A lot of uh, Nathan's uh, audience is probably in the uh, policing community. And, you know, it wasn't until I spent years um, seeing this stuff that it's it's almost surreal in terms of um, accepting the fact. So when you go to a port authority or a, a huge corporation, um, you just don't expect that interconnectivity with uh, organized crime, transnational organized crime. And any possible state-affiliated uh, activity, <clears throat> but if one looks at something even more contemporary, and Nathan and I were talking about this uh, earlier, as I took my computer and showed him across my uh, uh, suite uh, where I live and when I'm doing this podcast, and I turned my camera around uh, an hour ago, I showed him uh, uh, a port in the uh, Vancouver area, up from the port of Vancouver <clears throat> uh, here. Uh, where a where it's on open source uh, again. Port was purchased two years ago um, from uh, and is owned by a company in uh, Dubai. Um, and just coincidentally, I've monitored uh, the two largest opium seizures in the history of Canada being seized there since the port got taken over uh, and. And, um, and and I think it's about 4,000 kilograms, I think, if I remember correctly. <clears throat> I say that tentatively, but 4,000 kilograms of opium in two seizures in Vancouver. I've been working drug enforcement on and off for 30-some uh, uh, years down here. I don't remember that many opium uh, users to, to, to uh, support that. So, you know, critical infrastructure and, you know, police are going to the scenes of these seizures and that. Well, who actually owns these places? What's their connectivity to not only organized crime, but foreign states and adversaries, whether they be China, maybe in this case, Iran, because Iran, Afghanistan <clears throat> and Pakistan being kind of the origin of um, uh, opiates other than the synthetic ones. But I thought 
<clears throat> I just thought I'd share that kind of contemporary one because if you're in organized crime uh, work, say, for example, in Edmonton now, it's pretty hard to kind of imagine, you know, 4,000 kilograms just here in the last year. Where's that going to and who's behind it? And it, it, it ties back to what you're saying is this three, three decades, four decades of historical criminality connected to um, government entities and corporate entities uh, across Canada uh, and not necessarily uh, as far as Montreal only, but I would suggest probably across most Canadian uh, cities. And you know, we were having a conversation this summer about lithium mining uh, and the importance of it and kind of going, who owns the lithium mines in little prairie uh, towns back in Manitoba? And uh, it's the same, same people, same things. Well, and even with, uh, you see it in the U.S. right now, right? With, uh, I think it was Florida. DeSantis trying to ban uh, CCP or certain people from owning land or, or businesses. But, um, sorry, go ahead there, Scott. You're going to say something. Well, I, I was I was just going to say that the um, Calvin is exactly correct. I remember almost falling off my chair uh, very shortly after twenty in twenty fifteen when the Trudeau government was elected, and uh, one of the first things they did was sign a series of special agreements with the government of China to do joint efforts on um, organized crime. Border security, like what? You know, hello. But but I got to tell you, just an observation that I'd make. And I mentioned before, got to be able to think like the bad guys. The other side of that, I think, is and it's true not just of Canada, but of the rest of the world, is that our Western culture, in my sense, um, we're so arrogant that we think that everybody wants to be like us. Mm-hmm. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. And instead, the bad guys who are pretty sophisticated look at this. They go, "Oh, okay, that's how they do things." We can. It's you got to have kind of a wake up, I think, and realization of what's actually going on, uh, or you're going to be find yourself in uh, in real trouble. And um, it, uh, you know, ever the optimist, I think maybe over the last uh, three or four years, probably since the uh, the uh, Meng Wang's the uh, detention, arrested detention of the two Michaels. I think there's been a much more pragmatic and realistic awareness of the nature of is that we're deep and what their motivations are. And I think it's, and I, I, I admit my bias because it was part of the work that I originally did, the importance of informed journalism, mm-hmm. people reporting the truth so that the public get to know gets to know what the hell is actually going on so they can ask the right questions you know and try to hold people accountable and i think we're seeing more of that now but again i tell you you i wrote an article for it was for frontline security magazine i write for them a fair amount years ago and i think i think the concluding line was and i was going through all of the different sort of developments was it's time for sidewinder 2.0 yeah go ahead calvin it really is. I, I, I was for sure, for sure it is, and I think there's a, a numerous versions of it uh, coming out, uh, including from some of our uh, uh, guests that we've uh, had and may have uh, in the the future. 
um, in terms of investigative journalists seem to be producing it more than, uh, say, uh, government. I, I have a question for you because um, you mentioned something that I found uh, fascinating uh, and intriguing, and that was you introduced a term that I use as something that I historically, having worked inside government, seen as one of the major impediments and threats to Canada uh, in terms of responding to that. And that word that you used, which most Canadians will go, what? Uh, I get very defensive about is arrogance. And I use that all the time because I saw in my experience that arrogance blended with ignorance uh, was probably the biggest impediment uh, for Canadian security and intelligence and policing to uh, mitigate some of these uh, threats. And I just wondered in terms of your historical experience, which date, you know, predates mine and uh, Nathan's, if that was a common characteristic that you encountered in terms of trying to advance the threat, make people aware, and was that were these characteristics part of the problem? 100%, Calvin. Yeah. And I tell you that approach, uh, long before my uh, involvement in the uh, uh, Chinese uh, issues, um, I, that's what really got me involved in trying to expose things that were going on. And I mean, as you know, the reality of our criminal justice system is that a disproportionately large volume of crime is committed by a disproportionately small number of offenders, okay? But our system doesn't really want to deal with that reality. And as a result of that, when something would happen, and there were two uh, big cases, one was the murder of an Edmonton police officer named for Rome by a career criminal uh, named Albert Fulton, who should never have been released and was, and, you know, was charged with new offenses and wasn't, didn't have his uh, uh, parole revoked, okay? And we have, by the way, a legal system where it's a crime to breach the conditions, a crime to breach the conditions of your bail or your probation or your sentencing, not a crime to breach the conditions of your parole, mm. okay? And so the attitude was, and I encountered this, it was, it was known actually, I got this from the correctional officers uh, that I uh, had dealings with, uh, the culture was GTO, get them out, and KTO, keep them out. And the same thing, that's what I think and it probably was, you know, what David uh, uh, Kilgore realized when he asked me to get involved in this, was it was the thing that you do, was the cultural uh, thing. That, I'll give you an example. I have a, a very good friend who's a former uh, CSIS officer. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. He's a cybersecurity expert. And um, uh, he was actually at CSIS when all this stuff was going on about Sidewinder and it being shut down. And as you can imagine, um, the uh, uh, Brian McAdam, who was the uh, foreign affairs guy, was so frustrated with all of this that nobody was doing anything. And I remember him telling me one day, you know, like, what, are they all getting briefcases full of money from the Chinese agents? It doesn't feel like that. And I, after that, I talked to my friend who was at the time at CSIS, and he said, no, 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 
It wasn't that. He said it was a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. It became known within the institution that if you raise things about China, that's harmful for your career. And by the way, the guy who wrote the report, Juno Katsuya, guess what? He got driven out of thesis. Yes, what you're describing, those co-attitudes, um, that is definitely an experience that I've got. And it's, it's something that I think, you, you know, uh, as I've said before, the best way to, if you want to get the right answers, you got to ask the right questions. And when you come across, conversely, when you come across actual, uh, what I would call leadership, okay, in those kinds of institutions, to be supported. And I don't think there's any issue as you to the overall sort of larger uh, security issues than the uh, what we've allowed to have past 30 uh, plus years in Canada relating to China. Yeah, extremely concerning uh, dynamics, you know, uh, particularly, you know, the uh, the the impacts on uh, <clears throat> policing and that because I, I I think historically that's, you know, and in the intelligence service, there's been a lot of exceptional people that have tried to do uh, the right thing within these uh, organizations. And I know, um, um, you know, I hit a few road bumps in my career where I said I wasn't going to do X, Y, Z. Um, and it, you know, tied to, you know, either sharing information with foreign states or doing things uh, operationally in conjunction uh, with them. And I know, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm still kind of trying to figure out uh, if it was a blend of arrogance and ignorance uh, or willful blindness or what it was, but it seemed pretty obvious to me. And I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the room always that there was a high risk and there's, there was often consequences, um, you know, for not kind of following uh, through you, you quickly ended up uh, outside the tent uh, if you raised uh, issues that they didn't want to deal with. And, you know, to that point, two things that, that occurred to me, and I've seen this um, on multiple occasions as well, too. And again, I go back to that point. Um, nobody understands that reality uh, better than, for example, the uh, Communist uh, Party of China. And they recognize that there's a potential weakness they can exploit. So and I've run into the same thing for this land as well. Oh, yeah, let's go have a photograph. Oh, that'll be nice. Yeah, we'll take and guess what? Four years from now, you know, when something I'm under investigation, you may not want to have me investigated because there's a photograph of you and I together. And the other aspect of this that is is definitely true and it's in this the issues we're talking about is this can have implications for our security arrangements with other countries. The Americans did a review. They were doing one around the same time, a sidewinder, a little bit after. It was called uh, uh, Dragon Lord. And I managed to get, I got some contacts with different people. As you know, the world, Calvin. I mean, you know, you get uh, some information. Uh, uh, I, I, I ended up accidentally becoming, in effect, the handler for one guy, but he pointed me in the right direction. Uh, and in this project by the uh, the Americans, they described Canada as a significant security risk to the United States because of our vulnerability to China. Mm -hmm. 
That's reality. Okay, and we now I I'm you know ever the optimist. I think we are beginning to wake up. I think the world is beginning to wake up and realize that. Um, and it's just a fascinating thing to see that it goes how much of this goes back to and was predicted in Project Sidewinder and the work that was done that by these two uh, individuals that led to the creation of Sidewinder. But let's learn the lessons and take the, the appropriate action. Still needs to be done. Well, we were saying on one of the previous podcasts with uh, on these topics, just talking about the U.S., um, you know, spying on its own allies. Yes. But when, you know, you're the biggest one in the room and other people aren't picking up the slack, I guess somebody's got to do it. And we had a small discussion, I guess, around like whether, you know, can Canada or Canadians really get mad at the Americans for doing that? And it's like, well, you know, we're being seen as a uh, security threat to our own allies now. Some people are calling it the four eyes instead of the five eyes. So, you know, can can we really be mad at somebody that's at least doing something that maybe we should be doing um, to some degree? And Calvin, you got something? Well, I was going to say my experience was, you know, working with the Americans uh, intimately. Uh, I mean, we had DA, HSI you know, uh, U.S. border and all those people right when in our <clears throat> offices. And, um, you know, there was always those conversations. And I think I saw some in the papers recently, <clears throat> you know, about the importance of sovereignty uh, and that. And it's it's kind of like perhaps if we uh, reflected on it and looked at and maybe even just had a conversation with a group of constables and had a conversation to go, hey, do you have the tools in terms of the legal toolbox to tackle these things, you know, with the disclosure laws and everything else? And I know I bring that up on different podcasts mm. to take on the cartels, to take on <clears throat> the triads and take on these different networks. And I, my, my, my guess is because I had, uh, you know, essentially 200 of them working for me in Vancouver, they would uh, say, no, we don't have that capability. Well, then it goes back to that issue. If we can't do it, and it's a national security threat to us as a group because those borders are just imaginary lines. Um, I don't struggle with it uh, that much uh, to see at times if our sovereignty is uh, compromised if we uh, by by a friendly foreign state acting in Canada or beyond our borders at times uh, if we can't do it. And it doesn't seem mm -hmm. like the Canadian public and or the Canadian government or the legislators are prepared to give Canadian uh, police the tools to do it. And I don't see anybody in leadership in any of our institutions coming forward and saying this is not a issue, but a critical issue for our national security. Everybody's quiet on it. And it's kind of, you know, you talk about the podcast, The Quiet Professional, but I don't think this is the time... Uh, for these professionals to be that quiet anymore mm -hmm. because it's it's kind of went from being maybe a social harm public safety issue to now a national security issue and i think you know it's kind of time to as we talked on the last podcast to shift from chamberlain uh leadership styles to uh churchill leadership styles in terms of taking on uh, some of these uh organizations like the triads and others you know calvin uh you you make a very good point and it's uh it's certainly true in relation to the larger security issues we've been talking about, but that is exactly 
the reason that I ended up getting involved with the Canadian Police Association. Uh, and it, I go again, it goes back to the time with the bikers. The guys would often come to me and say, hey, we got this problem. OK, you know, the, can you find a solution for us? OK, and that was something that I got involved in doing. And I, I, I can tell you that I remembered um, uh, during my time at the police association, I started there. We set up a special victim's office, uh, but I ended up being, uh, I, I'd like to say I was asked. I wasn't so much asked as I was told, you're going to be the next executive officer. But it was because the guys wanted to see some specific actions being taken so that their the front officers were better protected from the repeat and uh, high-risk offenders. And that the public, you know, got the benefit from that as well, too. And so that's sort of the attitude that I developed uh, over that. And I can, to give you an example of it, the way things traditionally work is frontline people go to government and they say, well, okay, here's our problem. And when I say this, I also mean ministers, okay? Okay, well, you know, here's our problem. Please find me a solution. Uh, and then they come back with something, you know, that's, 400 pages long and, uh, oh yeah, it's going to be wonderful and everything else. No, a better way to do it is to do your own analysis and then call the officials in and hand them the piece of paper with the draft amendments and say, tell me why we can't do this. And I think that is the same approach that we need to take in relation to these larger security issues. And I think Canada would be very well served. And, and I must admit, I, uh, as I say, I worked in Washington for a year and uh, dealt with the uh, the FBI, um, who were, as, as one uh, deputy commissioner once put it to, to me in uh, explaining something that was on a file, on the Holy Land Foundation file, um, he said, yes, FBI, friendly but ineffective, because they didn't want to take any information that the group that I was working with, who were originally journalists and then investigative people, had been gathering on these Islamist groups because, you know, well, no, we don't really want the information from you because if we're the FBI, if it was important, we'd already have it. And so if we took it from you, we have to admit that there was something out there that we didn't have. And I remember just sitting there, you know, like shaking my head going, uh, you know, oh, and by the way, the, the guy that was in the meeting, uh, as this was being uh, gone back and forth, we were, they were ultimately reported to was Robert Mueller. Oh, really? May, whose name you may recognize. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to give them credit because I, I look at what they're doing with the media and uh, currently, and they are, um, you know, world leaders, I think, uh, currently in terms of going forward on the threat and, and particularly communicating with the public uh, about it, not hesitant of uh, offending. I, I was reading a, a speech. Uh, from this summer from the director of the FBI on uh, the influence of uh, foreign states and China on the business community. And it was, uh, I was kind of going, it would be nice to see that type of uh, talk given to the Canadian business community because yeah, yeah th that's where they're, that's where they're hit. Do you remember I, I was thinking about exactly what you're talking about. I was thinking about it uh, the last couple of days. Um, I got to know when he was the um, uh, 
uh, I think he was the head of CSIS at the time, or he might have been the national security advisor, Dick Fadden. I got to know Dick. He was the uh, deputy minister for a guy who was an old friend of mine, Jason Kenney. Uh, and remember that uh, I think he was at RMC and uh, he actually, in a speech, said, by the way, uh, you know, the Chinese are trying to influence Canadian politics. And in fact, there are two. Uh, provincial governments that have ministers that have links to the Chinese, and it caused all the controversy. Okay. Um, I did some research. He was right. And good on him for actually having the, the backbone and the candor to speak out about that. And I'll give you one uh, just observation. I actually am very glad to see that Canada has actually created this Canada China Committee in the House of Commons. Because they're starting to ask the kinds of questions that need to be asked. And we're seeing things like, you know, you look at whether it's Huawei or ZTE, uh, you know, their influence in the cyber world, mm -hmm. their uh, the Chinese government's influence in the Chinese uh, diaspora, going after the technology, the CBSA technology system and the RCMP technology system that are from China. Uh Maybe there needs to be some questions asked about that, but that is the bottom line with all this stuff. And I think it's what's so important about going back to the original reports and Project Sidewinder, because they did, provided that public info that wasn't made public. It is available now on a new special security uh, site uh, called the Internet that you can get the uh, uh, Sidewinder report. You Google it, uh, but it was. You want to if you want to get at the problem, you gotta ask the right questions and have the right information and not be too politically correct. As I say, I think we're moving in that direction. Yeah, and you know what? Um, one thing I just want to make sure we get in by the end here is uh, you do a lot of writing on cybersecurity and that world, and uh, some of the stuff you'd sent I found interesting. So some of the changes in definitions, which will lead into the tech is um, how you, you wrote about espionage and spy uh, spying and the change in the definition. So espionage, you had said that uh, it's not just looking for government plans anymore. Now espionage includes stealing business uh, businesses, intellectual property, information, influencing governments, uh, and possibly subverting them from within, as well as spying, no longer just members of a state. Um, they're using the diaspora, so everybody can... is is fair game, um, whether that's through pressures, threats, or, or coercion. Um, they also have special interest groups, all those individual hackers that you see out there. But can you just um, talk a little bit about the tech uh, side of things and, and some of the issues we just see there? I know everybody sees in the media TikTok. It's always the big one, but there's, there's more to it than that. So can you kind of give us some of that here just before we run out of time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a good example. Uh, and again, the Chinese were astute enough. They Their um, geopolitical strategy is long-term. Okay, they're always looking long-term. And I think they recognized the kinds of things that and how our societies and governance could change because of the change in technology, which, you know, frankly, has been remarkable. When I first came to the Canadian Police Association, it was basically in... 1992 was the pretty much the invention of the internet. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember we, uh, you know, put together this new uh, feature called the website. And um, we were working with a company out in uh, British Columbia to do it. And the guy was explaining how we could do this, you know, and I, I could add things on it. And I said, well, if I can add things onto my website, does that mean that other people can without our permission? Oh, we never thought of that. And security, in my experience, and I'm not a techie, okay? Like, I describe it, I organize a whole bunch of cybersecurity conferences from a policy perspective. It's, uh, as I always used to say after the meetings, fascinating, but frightening. Mm-hmm. Because the vulnerability there, and again, nobody recognizes that, in my experience, better than the uh, uh, Communist Party of China and exploit it as best they can. That's why things like, we talked about it uh, briefly before, but I think it's so important, uh, changes to uh, the uh, Canada Investment Act are so important. They were going to take over the Canadians. It's really important, and you got to appreciate as well two things. So actually, we're involved in making changes to the Invest Canada Act so that they it added in security just invoked, as you may recall, uh, recently to block further investments. And it's, as Calvin had pointed out, as we're moving into this, you know, uh, uh, rare earth minerals and all of this new uh, technologies, we need to be fully aware of that, including what our vulnerabilities are and how we can address them. Because they ain't going to just go away. Yeah. And um, I want to kind of maybe we'll finish just with the just two lines that I took out of one of the writings that you sent. And I think it kind of sums up everything we've done over these episodes, over this series pretty well. But it it goes something like this. So we must recognize that our cherished freedoms are viewed by others as weaknesses to be exploited. And we must fully understand exactly who who we are dealing with and not blindly assume good faith. Yes. So I thought that was pretty well spot on. Thank you. It was a lesson learned. (laughs) <laughs> anything else uh from you there calvin um any other final thoughts or anything no just uh, uh really appreciate uh scott you giving us that uh historical uh context because it's uh even though i'm uh working with uh, nathan on this uh series of uh issues um your experience and insight uh predates uh my exposure to it so i really appreciated uh that uh, historical analysis of it and how that ties into the uh, sadly uh, ongoing uh, issues and threats to Canada. Thank you very much. And uh, I got to tell you guys that you're doing, for example, even on this, I think is a critical part, enhancing public awareness, uh, because that is one of the most important steps in actually making the right changes. So thank you. We're doing what we can. Yep. Um, so thank you, Scott. And if you just want to hang on the line for a second, I'm just going to stop the recording.